Hello listeners, welcome to Watch Your Mouth, What the Bible Says About What We Say. I'm your host, Dorma Geis, and I'm thrilled I get to share 30 minutes of your day. If you've ever said something you wish you could take back or been in a situation where you should have said something but didn't know what to say, then this half hour will certainly be worth your time. Whether you realize it or not, the world we live in, even your personal world, was first created with words. The laws that govern our lives, the cultures in our families, churches and workplaces, the status of our relationships, albeit romantic, marriage, parenting, spiritual, social and professional, are all built, fortified and demolished one word at a time. Through this podcast, we will explore a vast collection of pleasant and regrettable circumstances from both biblical and equally non-religious encounters that started with something somebody said. The best thing about this podcast is you can start with any episode you wish. Now, each episode corresponds with my weekly blog post, which you can find on my website at watchyourmouth.blog. Just as my blog posts, which are a quick five-minute read, focus on one of the 850 verbal activities I discovered in the Bible and map to our present-day communication, Each of these episodes is a brisk, power-packed 30 minutes of wisdom, history, trivia, and often humor. Verbal activities are simply things our words do. For instance, in every conversation with someone, without thinking, we may accuse them, boast, curse, defend them, encourage, flatter, gossip, honor, insult them, joke, express kindness, lie to them, mock, nag, offend them, etc. But the words we choose are not merely innocuous sound bites traveling through our hearers' ears. They have the power to mend or break their hearts. And in every case, we don't know which result we've achieved until after the words have been spoken. Wouldn't it be great if we could spend the precious time we have creating awesome memories with each other instead of trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube? As with the blog post, each episode is structured to deliver you the most relevant information within a brief time frame. I will start with the verbal activity we'll be discussing and its definition. For my history buffs and Bible enthusiasts, I'll share the approximate number of times this activity occurred and include a prominent example from Scripture. For my contemporary listeners, don't worry, there's something for you too. In the same podcast, I'll share an example of newsworthy events we can quickly recall or relate to. From there, we'll get into the meat. Each episode has two major segments, That Was Then, which is a biblical historical account, and This Is Now, a non-religious modern account. These are followed by our quick, Who Said That? segment, where we'll listen to a relevant and thought-provoking quote. Lastly, we'll end with, What Did You Say? where we'll rehash some awkward communication styles and commonly used toxic catchphrases that we would do well to remove from our speech. And I'll leave you with an affirmation to recite and focus on until our next episode. Oh, and because this podcast is designed to jump in anywhere, this overview is on all of them. So if you're not a first-time listener, feel free to bypass this three-and-a-half-minute introduction and get right into the topic. Now that you know the drill, let's prepare to watch our mouths as we guard our hearts and renew our minds. Today we'll be exploring court trials that went horribly wrong, but thankfully these conversations and corresponding actions eventually led to someone's acquittal. According to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, acquit means to discharge completely, as from an obligation or accusation, and they use the example, the court acquitted the prisoner. This occurs approximately six times in scripture, and today's example is taken from the book of John, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. 
For your convenience, I'll play this text for you using the New International Version from Bible.com and read by Max McLean. But first, I want to zero out to our feature text in verses 10 and 11, which says, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So backing into this account, we know the result is a woman was acquitted. And for an acquittal to be declared, she had to have first been accused of something, or indicted, and then judged, or as we currently say, sentenced. Now let's zero out to get the full context. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. How creepy and diabolical do you have to be to catch someone in the act of adultery and out them the way these religious leaders did? With sexual intimacy within itself being a very private act, it doesn't strain the imagination to assume that someone betraying their spouse would go to great pains to keep those interludes even more private especially during these times when the Jews were still governed by the book of the law, which states in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. So how do you catch an adulteress in biblical times? Were they stalking her? Were they voyeurs peeking through the window? Perhaps hiding under the bed? Did they leap from the closet? Who controlled this setup? Did one or more of them have anecdotal evidence that she was an adulteress? And by that I mean, well, you know what I mean. But as you hear this salacious account of the woman caught in adultery, there are a myriad of lenses you could peer through. The defendant herself, her smug, sanctimonious, I would never prosecutors, the Levitical law she broke, and Jesus, the righteous judge. Curiously, though, two key witnesses are absent from this passage, her paramour, or shall I say lover, and more interestingly, her husband, which begs the question, where was the man? If you need another example of how the law can be abused to oppress the most vulnerable people in society at that time, then here's one more. The fact that they didn't expend any effort to produce both parties makes it quite clear that they weren't the least bit interested in enforcing the law, but in using her as a pawn for another agenda, which we'll get to in a minute. But no matter which perspective you tried this case from, nothing could prepare you for the verdict. 
If you attend church sporadically or have a monogrammed pew, you likely heard this account preached. If you don't attend church, you still likely heard or even used the expression, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Well, that very saying comes from this account. You see, Jesus was in the temple courts preparing to teach a crowd of people when the town law professors and Pharisees, which were the highest ranking religious leaders of that time, brought a woman they caught in an adulterous wrong and made her stand in all her glory to be judged before this ogling throng of church folk who was anything but a jury of her peers. If that weren't mortifying enough, they sought the death penalty on demand. They not only intended for this to be her last memory, but that the crowd would remember nothing else about her life. Their case seemed open and shut. The evidence was indisputable, and they cleverly argued from precedent, the law of Moses, which again says in John chapter 8, verses 4 and 5 in the New International Version, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? Now, we already know they had zero interest in stoning her, nor did they care about the downstream impact of their accusation to her reputation, her life, or her family. In fact, these second-chair wannabe prosecutors made the rookie mistake of showing their hand during their opening argument because the law they miscited commanded them to stone both the woman and the man. You'd only need to turn back one chapter to see the one they truly wanted to stone was Jesus, and they saw this as their big chance. One wrong answer could place him on trial instead of her. So what would Jesus do in this case? No doubt she was guilty, and according to the law, rightly should be stoned. Did these bloodthirsty religious hypocrites finally have Jesus on the ropes? What would he do? Would he contradict Moses to appease the tax collectors and sinners these religious bigots hated that he hung out with so liberally? If he sentenced her to death, would that nullify the grace he extended to all the other people of ill repute he ministered to? They intended for Jesus' rebuttal literally to be a matter of life or death, both hers and his. Here's where we get to see both the perfect advocate and the righteous judge in action. The latter part of verse 6 says, But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. He did this not once, but twice, as we also heard in verse 8. So, okay, well, since no one outside of these attendees knew what he wrote, let's indulge in a little thought experiment for a moment. Jesus Christ is the one whom more books were written about than any other living being, yet this is the only recorded encounter of him writing anything. And he didn't apply permanent ink to parchment. He wrote in the dust with his finger, where the wind could blow it away, or it could easily be trampled under his feet. What do you think he wrote? Even if we didn't color outside of the lines of Scripture, we could refer to what we know Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13, which says, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. But even purists have imaginations, so pick your brightest crayons and let's go with it. 
In this crowd, everyone standing before the judge was guilty. So is it a stretch that he linked the prosecutors to the secret sins of their past? Perhaps he wrote the name of a prostitute in Rome that a Pharisee used to frequent. Maybe this guy saw her name and remembered an appointment he needed to rush off to. Afterwards, he could have written the name of a brothel in Ephesus, which, by the way, was the Las Vegas of that day, that caused a few law professors to scurry to get their kids to track practice. And for the young holdouts who remained to score a career-defining conviction and impress their mentors, perhaps they saw the name of a girl they impregnated and left to live a life of shame because she would ruin their career prospects. But we're just thinking here. Regardless of what he wrote, it turns out that Jesus' trial strategy was unrivaled as his one-line closing argument forced them to take the stand and convicted their own conscience. John chapter 8 verse 7 delivers the epic shade heard round the world and cliché to this day. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Further from their expectations than the blindsiding acquittal that was handed down was the fact that they themselves were compelled to declare the mistrial. What a paradox! These erudite sophisticates suddenly found themselves more exposed before Jesus than the buck-naked adulteress they accused. That one rebuttal not only saved this woman's life, but cleared the temple court as everyone who heard began to go away one at a time, the older repeat offenders first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there, according to verse 9. It was at this point when the official verdict of not guilty was delivered and she was free to go. No matter who you most identify with from this account, we are all the woman caught in adultery and are standing uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. According to the latter part of Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13, thank God we can all be acquitted through Jesus according to Romans chapter 4 verses 7 and 8 which says, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. I hope you got something from our That Was Then segment. For my contemporary listeners, thanks for hanging in with me. As King Solomon often said, there's nothing new under the sun. Let's fast forward a couple thousand years to explore an account from the same verbal activity, a quit, in our This Is Now segment. I served 23 years for a wrongful conviction. I did 29 years in prison for a crime I didn't commit. I spent 39 years of my life in prison for a crime I didn't commit. Well, a Cleveland man will soon be free from prison 39 years after he was falsely accused of murder. I can endure the beatings, the bites, the stabbings, but the loneliness and the not knowing. And we got so many questions, but nobody's answering any of them. I spent 15 years 
incarcerated for a crime that I did not commit. Well, the rain Head Start school bus driver accused 20 years ago was back in a courtroom today. I thought, my God, what am I going to do? How did this happen to me? You feel so in despair. You want to have that hope and you want to have that faith, but you don't know where you're going to get it from. I served 20 years in prison for crimes I didn't commit. I didn't do it. I did not do it. I'm not the guy. Imagine being a common juror, Jane, on trial for a heinous crime you didn't commit. You've endured weeks, if not months, of nerve-wracking testimony and character assassination. Friends and family members who seemed fiercely supportive of you in the beginning have gradually rescinded their commitment. Defending your innocence proves to be a toilsome uphill battle that your legal counsel is unfit for. Your life is now in the hands of 12 strangers who will decide whether you'll sleep in your own bed, kiss your spouse or partner, raise your children, eat your favorite meal, hang out with your friends, or experience any semblance of freedom within the next few decades. After deliberating for what seemed like an eternity, the jury enters a verdict that causes your knees to buckle. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty on all counts. For most of us, this was merely a troubling mental exercise. But for the people you just heard from, by the way, all of whom are just from the state of Ohio, they join over 2,800 people listed in a National Registry of Exonerations to date. To them, this was akin to receiving an all-expenses-paid trip to hell. A staggering 50% of these jailed but innocent people are African-American. The registry was founded in 2012 and only records cases in the U.S. of people wrongly convicted and acquitted of all charges going back to just 1989, which means there are many others that are undocumented or worse yet, still incarcerated or deceased. Most, if not all, of the defendants that make up this very select group represented the most vulnerable members of our society, as they lacked the pedigree, the financial means, the educational and legal representation to be given a fair trial, and unfortunately also fell victim to mistaken identity, sloppy police investigation, faulty forensic science, prosecutorial misconduct, political posturing, and corrupt judicial practices. One example is Marvin Anderson. Let's take a listen to his story in his own words. My name is Marvin L. Anderson. Um, I was born in Hanover, Virginia, uh, uh, 1982. I went to trial and was convicted of two counts of rape, sodomy, robbery, and abduction. I was sentenced to a total sentence of 210 years. I spent 15 years in prison uh, and five years on parole before I was exonerated in 2001. When they first called me down to talk to them, because I was at work, they started questioning me about, um, did I know anything about a rape that took place over the weekend? And uh, and I informed you know, only what I knew from hearing in the neighborhood, that yeah, someone was raped and who did it? Before we arrived at the county jail, they had stopped by the victim's apartment. The photo spread that she was shown to were all black and white pictures, mugshots. Well, I've never been in trouble with the law before, so there wasn't a mugshot of me anywhere. And the investigator also retrieved a uh, work ID, which is a color you know, photo. Each time they showed her photographs of a you know, photo mug, my picture was in each set, that one color picture. 
And by doing that, you know, you're looking at a photo spread of all black and white pictures and one color pictures keep showing up. Eventually, it's going to stick in your mind. And that was what stood out in her mind, a picture of me. From day one, everyone in the community knew who committed the crime. Um, when I was arrested for it, you know, the community was, you know, wait a minute, they had the wrong person. He was there that day in court. Um, so it wasn't like they had to go find him. He was there. Um, as a matter of fact, when I walked in the courtroom that morning, he was already on trial for assault on a female. So it wasn't like they had to go clean across the county to find this man. He was already there in court. The trial lasted approximately about maybe two, two and a half, three hours. The jury was out no more than four to five minutes. When I first went, I was 18 years old. You know, young man beginning his life, you know, life journey. I went in scared. I went in as a child. But yet, over the years, I grew into a, a man that I am today. So I was paroled in 97, and five years later, you know, I'm still fighting for my freedom. I was on Interstate 95 uh, on my way home from work, um, driving a tractor trailer, and Peter called me up on the phone. Normal questions. Hey, Marvin, how you doing? Uh, this is Peter Newfell. Um, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm on the interstate heading home. And that's when he said, well, we found your evidence. And I can't officially say you've been excluded, but you've been excluded. And I was like, oh my goodness. <laughs> you know, I was like, Peter, wait a minute. I said, man, I'm on 95. I'm driving a big truck. Let me get home. I'm only five minutes away from home. And he was like, okay, call me back when you get home. So I'm, you know, I'm driving along and you like, man, you gonna be free. You know, you finally can prove your innocence. So how does this keep happening? And how does an ambitious young man with a stable job, the love of his family, respect of his community, and absolutely no criminal history become the prime suspect in one of the most egregious violations of a white female or anyone in Virginia at that time? It turns out the single thing that made Marvin Anderson a person of interest in this case was his personal interest. He just happened to have a white girlfriend. This one factor caused investigators to pursue him like a honey badger going after, well, anything. Once they locked Mr. Anderson in their sights, they stubbornly refused to be deterred, not even by conflicting DNA evidence that identified someone else as the attacker. And when the culprit himself, who was already in state prison for multiple rapes committed before and after this offense, confessed to this crime a year later, the investigator's response was, meh, pish posh. We already got our guy. Thank God for the Innocence Project, along with their National Capital Region at American University, who discovered this case while representing another wrongly accused man and found links that would exonerate Mr. Anderson as well. Both defendants found a welcome smoking gun in the form of a lab notebook of a criminalist named Mary Jane Burton. She was known for meticulously keeping a small portion of the, all the evidence from every case she was assigned in the event it was needed later. Had Burton followed policy and returned her partially used swabs to these rape kits, all evidence in these cases would have been forever lost. 
It's worth noting that the contents of Ms. Burton's files have since resulted in the exonerations of 16 wrongly accused incarcerated men. Thankfully, this story has a happy ending. In 2003, the Virginia legislature approved a lump sum compensation payment to Marvin Anderson of $200,000 plus $40,000 annually for life. Moreover, from a young age, Mr. Anderson's dream had been to become a firefighter, and right before he was convicted, he was in the process of going through the academy to become a professional fireman. Well, today he serves as the chief of the Hanover, Virginia Volunteer Fire Company, where he oversees a team of about 30 people. He also serves on the board of directors for the Innocence Project and has three children. This podcast celebrates the many people who dedicate their careers and lives to getting justice for those whom the system failed. People like Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld, co-founders of the Innocence Project, are not only responsible for Marvin Anderson's acquittal, but for over 375 exonerations since its inception in 1992. In addition to leveraging DNA testing to acquit wrongly accused individuals, they labor to reform the criminal justice system to prevent future injustice, as well as provide support to exonerees while they rebuild their lives post-release. There's not enough time to tell of the many others who dedicate themselves to the work of providing wrongly incarcerated men and women worldwide the hope of a new life via a trial that concludes with the words, You're free to go with the court's profuse apologies. Wow, what a powerful segment. We're moving on to who said that? And I believe you'll find today's quote apropos, and this speaker needs no introduction. Those who say to me, stick to civil rights, can do what they want to do. That's their business as other civil rights leaders for various reasons refuse or can't take a stand or have to go along with the administration. That's their business. But I'm afraid that I know that justice is indivisible. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Today's Who Said That segment highlights Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who said in a 1963 speech, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. This brings us to our final segment, What Did You Say?, where we take a moment to examine our choice of words and decide to eliminate unhelpful and hurtful speech from our dialogue. The fastest way to choose what to say is to know what not to say. And the best way to determine what not to say is to see what the Bible says about what we say. So before exploring some examples, let's take our cues from two very straightforward scriptures. The first is Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15, in the New International Version, which says, Quitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. And the second, which is like the verse I noted earlier in the That Was Then segment, is found in Luke chapter 6, verse 37 in the Amplified Version. Since there is no audio for this version, I'll have to read it to you. In the words of Jesus himself, Do not judge others self-righteously, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn others when you are guilty and unrepentant, and you will not be condemned for your hypocrisy. 
pardon, acquit others when they truly repent and change, and you will be pardoned, acquitted when you truly repent and change. I like the way the classic amplified version puts the latter part of that verse. It says, acquit and forgive and release, give up resentment, let it drop, and you will be acquitted and forgiven and released. So the Bible has given us an example of when not to acquit and when it is acceptable and frankly expected for us to do so. And to practically apply this in our lives today, let's expose and uproot some communication styles and catchphrases that stem from past hurts caused by a person or circumstance. Left unattended, these feelings could give way to critical or judgmental tendencies, or worse yet, to bitterness and unforgiveness. All of these things create barriers to our success, not just in our relationships with others, but they can affect us personally by stunting our spiritual and emotional growth, imprisoning us in anger, and even impairing our health. In this case, we can come across as rigid or condescending, and friendly chats can morph into toxic rants of rehashing old painful memories, identifying people by their faults and flaws, making assumptions about a person or situation without being open to knowing all the facts, and not asking enough questions or only asking leading questions that will paint the person in a negative light, or using yourself as the standard by which all others will be measured. Clues that one or more of these things may be lingering subtly in our hearts result in sayings like, I could never forgive this person for what they did. How could you still be friends with them? Don't you remember what they did? I can tell he or she is guilty just by looking at them. I don't need to know anymore. I've already made up my mind. Boy, those people are all the same. You can't trust any of them. And the whopper of them all. I would never have done something like that. The best antidote to this poison is to acquit the person of all charges. This not only frees them, but liberates you as well. I realize it's not easy, but it's easier than the alternative. Some of the most powerful, healing, and life-changing words you can say are, I forgive you. Even in cases where all is not well, all can still be forgiven. I've had to do it. And I can say with humble gratitude that a few people have done it for me. Marvin Anderson and all the people we heard from in this podcast can teach us a thing or two about acquitting. Not just because they were acquitted, but because they had to work extremely hard to acquit and forgive the people and the system that violated and traumatized them, all while robbing them of a significant portion of their lives. Snippets of Mr. Anderson's interview with WNCU after his release underscores everything we explored about acquitting. The day that I was found guilty, of course, you know, I turned around to look at my family who was in court with me, and I couldn't see them. I mean, everything was black. Although they was less than 10 feet from, away from me, I couldn't see them. It's like you fall into a, a black hole and... You can't climb, pull your way out. I was angry. Um, of course, we're all going to be angry because we don't really understand what it has just happened to us. Um, you know you didn't commit a crime, but yet your life is in the hands of 12 people and a judge who just said, you did this crime. You don't know happening where to go. I was mad, more or less, at our system. Um people that I trusted. Over the years, you learn how to 
turn on your emotions and turn them off. Um, you learn how to control your emotions. And in order to, to better myself and to stay focused, I chose not to be angry. You know, anger only does one thing to you, and that's eat at you and eat away from you. It takes everything from you. If you spend that much energy in being angry at something or someone, you have no energy to fight. And I'm going to myself, wow. All of these years of fighting, we finally have the evidence to prove my innocence. When there was a time that no one wanted to listen to me, no one believed me, and now I can prove my innocence. Society believes that once a person goes to court, he's found guilty that he actually committed a crime. That is not the case. Not everyone that is incarcerated committed a crime. And until society believes and accept the fact that we only human, we make mistakes, there are innocent people that are in prison. Lastly, I'll leave you with an affirmation to ponder and say until we get together again. Ready? I am slow to judge and quick to forgive or acquit. Even in painful or confusing situations, I pursue the path of peace by remaining objective while leaving the justice to God. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, feel free to share it with everyone and check out the corresponding blog post at watchyourmouth.blog for more insight. Feel free to download the show notes from our podcast page to get links and references to the information shared in this episode. You can also join our member community by subscribing and we'll make sure you never miss one. Members can also share comments, stories, and keep the conversation going in our discussion forum. Additionally, please consider supporting this podcast by donating any amount on our donation page. Your generosity enables us to keep delivering fresh content and reach more people. Lastly, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest. Until next time, be well and watch your mouth.